Uh, well, friends, uh, sometimes bizarre things happen in this world. Uh, in 1972, a Czech woman by the name of Vera Chermak jumped out of her third-story window after learning that her husband had been unfaithful to her. The local newspaper reported that Mrs. Chermak was recovering in hospital after landing on her husband, who happened to be walking on the footpath at the time. She lived, but unfortunately he died. Now, uh, I don't know how you feel about that. Um, some of us might feel sorry uh, for this man. Uh, who feels sorry for him? Uh, good? No one? Uh, so uh, I'm guessing that many of us will say that some kind of justice had been done. Because uh, deep down, uh, I think our sense of justice tells us that there ought to be consequences for wrongdoing. Is that right? Uh, that's why we get so indignant when we see injustice in this world. Uh, we get indignant when we see a murderer go free because of some loophole in the law. We get indignant when we see the rich not paying any tax like the rest of us. Uh, the world is very good at getting indignant when there is injustice in the world and we want somebody to do something about it, don't we? It's just that when it comes to God, uh, our world can have double standards. On the one hand, we want God to bring justice into this world, uh, to put right all that is wrong in this world. However, on the other hand, we would like God to judge everyone else who has done wrong, but just not ourselves. But God is not partial in this way. Uh, he is not like that corrupt cop who punishes some harshly, but goes easy on others by taking bribes. No, he is a God of perfect justice, and when he judges, he will judge everyone by the same standard. But what does God's justice look like? Uh, what can we expect from God's judgment in this world? Uh, well, friends, uh, we're in the middle of a series on the book of Revelation, as uh, has been mentioned. And uh, you might remember that Revelation is written to the seven churches uh, of Asia Minor who are suffering persecution uh, at the hands of the Roman Empire for following Jesus. And uh, in today's passage, the vision that the Apostle John sees is that of God's judgment on those who do not worship God, but rather worship the beast, and persecute God's people. Uh, now, you'll notice there that this judgment is portrayed in these chapters as seven plagues. Uh, in chapter 15, verse 5, chapter 15, verse 5, if you have your Bibles uh, open in front of you, uh, the Apostle John sees a vision of heaven, which in the picture language of Revelation uh, looks like a big tent uh, or, a, or a tabernacle representing the place of God's presence. Uh, in verse 6, uh, you'll see there that he sees seven angels coming from uh, this tent in heaven, dressed in bright linen and golden sashes around their waist. Uh, if, you if you remember, this is exactly uh, the clothing that the Lord Jesus Christ himself was dressed in 
uh, in chapter 1, verse 13. And so it appears that these angels who are coming from heaven are, are representatives of Jesus. And in verse 7, John sees one of the four living creatures, uh, who, if you remember, are uh, these heavenly creatures that are closest uh, to the throne of God. And uh, uh, these four, uh, one of these heavenly creatures gives the seven angels seven bowls full of the wrath of God, which will be poured out on the earth like seven plagues. And curiously, in verse 8, it seems that no one can enter God's presence without such a judgment taking place. It seems that sinful people simply cannot enter God's presence without some kind of judgment taking place at the hand of God. Uh, now, friends, uh, we've already seen God's judgment described in cycles of seven uh, in the book of Revelation, haven't we? Uh, does anyone remember what cycles of seven we've seen in the book of Revelation? Just um, put up your hand if you can remember and call it out. I know it was a while ago. Yep, young. Uh, seven churches in chapters two and three. Yep. Yep, Andrew. Seven seals we've seen. Yep. What else? Monique. Seven trumpets. So, uh, you know, John seems to use the number seven quite a lot, and we see these uh, cycles of seven. Uh, and in particular, these cycles of seven are used to describe God's judgment in, in, in some way. Uh, God's judgment on this world both now, and that's very important, both now uh, as well as the final judgment at the end of human history when Jesus returns. And uh, we saw, didn't we, that whenever we see God's judgment on this world described in, uh, in a cycle of seven, we are not meant to read these cycles chronologically. Um, so we're not meant to, for example, put the seven seals at the beginning and then you know, the seven trumpets here and then the seven uh, plagues at the end and, and read them chronologically as an explanation of uh, human history. But rather they describe the same judgment of God, both now and at the end of history, from slightly different camera angles. Uh, you remember we've uh, used that illustration of uh, watching an action replay of a sporting event. You know, you can watch the same event, but uh, you view them from slightly different camera angles uh, again and again. Uh, that seems to be what's going on in this book. But uh, what is different about these seven plagues that John is describing? Well, one noticeable difference is that God's judgment here seems to be total in its destructive nature. Uh, you might remember that with the seven seals, a quarter of the world is destroyed. With the seven trumpets, it's a bit more. A third of the, the world is destroyed. But here with the plagues, it seems that the destruction is more total than what we've seen in the past. Uh, further, we are given clues in the image of the plagues themselves. Uh, you know, with the seven seals, the, the image is of something that is revealed, isn't it? When you break open a seal in a letter, um, the, it reveals to you what is inside. 
It's anticipating uh, what is inside. Uh, with the seven trumpets, the image is that of an announcement that is being made. Uh, when you blow a trumpet, it's usually before an, an important royal announcement is made. But the seven plagues seem to be more final. Uh, just like the plagues in Egypt uh, at the Exodus, um, just as those plagues cause Pharaoh's heart to harden and take him to his ultimate end, well, there seems to be a finality to what we are seeing happening in these seven plagues. And so I think these seven plagues describe events that bring to an end the lives of those who are unrepentant. Uh, these seven plagues are describing events that bring to an end the lives of the unrepentant. It's talking about the end of life for those who worship the beast rather than worship the Creator. It's total and it's final, and you'll notice that it is fair. Uh, in chapter 16, verse 6, you can see there that one of the angels say that God is just because these ones who are being judged, well, they are the ones who have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets. And now look what's happening. God is giving them blood to drink. You shed the blood of my people, I will give you blood to drink, says God. When God's judgment comes, no one will be able to say that it wasn't fair. Well, if this is the case, then how does God's judgment come? Well, in chapter 16, you can see there that each of the seven angels pours out the seven uh, bowls full of the wrath of God. And uh, I want you to notice here the, the variety of different ways in which God brings his judgment to those who worship the beast. Uh, when the first bowl is poured out in verse 2, it is in the form of incurable disease. When the second and third bowls are poured out in verses 3 and 4, it is in the form of ecological disaster. Uh, the seas and the rivers and the springs of water turn to blood. When the fourth bowl is poured out in verse 8, it is the scorching heat of the sun, a global warming, if you like. When the fifth bowl is poured out in verse 10, it is in the form of spiritual darkness. And when the sixth bowl is poured out in verse 12, it is in the form of a drought. Uh, you see, friends, God can and does use any of these means to bring to an end the lives of people in his wrath and his indignation at human sin. Uh, now, of course, this doesn't mean that we can uh, you know, simply draw a straight line between uh, the suffering of individuals and, and nations and say that you know, that means that they were more sinful than anyone else. But it is to say that the world we live in is under the judgment of God and he will use all manner of different means to bring people's lives to an end as a judgment against those who worship the beast rather than worship the creator. Further, it is true that those who belong to Christ also suffer and die 
in these ways, isn't it? And yet, while death is a gateway to eternal life for those who belong to uh, Christ, it is the beginning of the end for the unrepentant sinner. Uh, One commentator writes, Whenever destruction comes upon the unrepentant sinner, there is for him or her the last day, the end of his world, and the final confrontation with Christ, who comes at all times like a thief when men least expect him. Now, friends, it is interesting here that one of the ways in which God's judgment is expressed is through the environment, Uh, whether it's ecological disaster or the scorching heat of the sun or drought. Uh, We may find this strange because uh, we don't usually think about the link between human sin and the environment that we live in, do we? But it's entirely consistent with the Bible's teaching. Uh, In Genesis 3, after the sin of Adam, God says to him, Cursed is the ground because of you. In Matthew 24, Jesus himself says that there will be famines and earthquakes in various places and that these are the beginnings of the end, the the beginning of the birth pains. And in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning, groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Uh, Now, I'm not a climate change expert. Uh, I don't actually know a lot about climate change. But uh, I wonder whether uh, what we see here in Revelation is important for a Christian response to environmental issues. Uh, In other words, if we understand God's word rightly, that even things like ecological disasters are a judgment from God on a sinful world, then perhaps the Christian response is not first and foremost, uh, how can we fix these things ourselves? But to know that something is deeply wrong with this world, and to know that something is deeply wrong with me, And I need to turn back to God before it is too late. But repentance towards God may, for some, involve uh, involve repenting from greed and overconsumption so that we do care for the environment and become more conscious of the damage that we do. But uh, uh, here's the surprising thing in this passage. Uh, What God says in this part of Revelation is that by and large, even when our world sees these things happening, it will not respond with repentance. Uh, You can see it there in verse 9. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Or you can see it again at the end of verse 10. People gnawed their tongues in anguish. What a a horrible image. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. And friends, uh, isn't this precisely what our world is like? 
Uh, in one sense, you don't need the evening news to tell you what the wor- world is like. In fact, the evening news will often distort things for, for us. Uh, you know, you turn on the news, you see stories of death and disease all the time, don't you? You see stories of ecological disaster, you see stories of drought. But then right at the end, they will put in a feel-good story about a puppy being rescued or something like that. Uh, in order to make you feel like, well, you know, everything's right in this world again. But God's word shows us the reality of what our world is really like. It's a world that is under the judgment of God for human sinfulness. And even when God judges, people do not repent. Such is their sinfulness. You know, when we had the global financial crisis, was there a marked increase in the number of people who turned to God? Hardly. You know, when the Ebola virus was killing thousands and thousands of people around the world, was there a marked increase in the number of people who were turning to God? I don't think so. When we see drought in our country, is there a marked increase in the number of people who turn to God? No. For you see, even in the midst of judgment, people continue to curse God and stubbornly fail to turn to him, so hardened are people in this world against their creator. Uh, Now friends, uh, you'll notice there that after the sixth plague, there is a bit of an interlude in the vision that John sees from God. Uh, You may have noticed that uh, this is a bit of a pattern. Uh, In the cycles of seven, uh, after the sixth Uh, in the cycle, uh, there's usually a bit of an interlude uh, before the seventh is introduced. And uh, I think this interlude just helps you to pause and see something crucial that is is going on. Uh, Here, what John sees is is a vision of a great battle which takes place at Armageddon. Uh, In the Hebrew language, Armageddon means the Mount of Megiddo, And uh, Megiddo, uh, if if you've uh, been a reader of the Old Testament, uh, you might have come across that word a number of times. It's it's a place of battle in the Old Testament that's mentioned again and again, uh, where God and his people uh, are engaged in some kind of battle with their enemies. However, in the book of Revelation, Armageddon doesn't seem to be any particular geographical place in this world, but rather... Uh, symbolic of the whole world as a a battleground. Uh, Now notice what is going on here. Uh, In verse 13, you have what many people call the unholy trinity in the book of Revelation. Uh, You have the dragon, whom we have seen already in previous chapters, is Satan. Uh, You have the beast, uh, who is a pawn of Satan in the form of an earthly ruler, who demands the worship of people. And uh, you have the false prophet, who is, if you like, the PR agent of the beast. And uh, you can see there that out of their mouths come three unclean spirits that are like frogs. Now, where have we seen frogs before? Yeah? 
in the book of Exodus. Uh, we, we just studied uh, Exodus before this series. Uh, do you remember that one of the plagues in Egypt involved uh, Egypt, uh, sorry, involved uh, God sending to Egypt uh, frogs that, that swarmed the land? And uh, do you remember that the magicians of Pharaoh were able to uh, imitate that and produce frogs of their own, which further deceives Pharaoh so that he hardens his heart against God? Uh, you see, what the unholy trinity are doing here, I think, is that they are spiritually deceiving people so that they harden their heart against God in the same way that the magicians of, of Egypt were able to facilitate the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. But who are the ones being deceived? Well, uh, if you have a look at verse 14, it is the kings of the whole world who are gathered together to do battle against God's king who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it's a fulfillment of Psalm 2, uh, which we read together this morning, where the kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed king. Uh, you see, in every period of human history, there are kings and rulers who take their stand against God and against his king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in the Roman Empire, it was people like Nero and Domitian who persecuted Christians to the death, throwing them into the mouths of lions. In the 20th century, it was people like Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot who sought to eradicate Christianity. More recently, we've seen the Islamic Caliphate beheading Christians. Uh, in our part of the world, it may be the kings and rulers of media and large corporations who subtly but powerfully stand against God's king, opposing him and his morality and, bringing, uh, and bullying his people. You see, in every period of human history, kings and rulers are, are assembled together to do battle against God and his king because Satan is at work. And this will make it very hard for those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does God say? Uh, well, here is the one application uh, in this passage that is explicit. Uh, for here God says to his people, stay awake, keep your clothes on. You can see it there in verse 15. Stay awake, keep your clothes on. Verse 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Uh, you've probably seen the warning signs on uh, Australian roads trying to prevent drivers from falling asleep at the wheel. Uh, I've noticed that uh, these signs are becoming more and more graphic uh, as uh, more and more people do fall asleep at the wheel uh, and lose their lives. Uh, there are some signs uh, that you may have seen uh, with an actual mangled car kind of sticking out of uh, the billboard. Has anyone seen those signs? I think it's on the way to, to, to Wollongong. And uh, at the bottom are words like this. She never knew what hit her. She was fast asleep. 
stop, revive, survive. Uh, or this one, uh, even guns and roses at full blast couldn't help him. Stop, revive, survive. Uh, friends, this is the big stop, revive, survive sign in the book of Revelation. For it's so easy to fall asleep in the Christian life, isn't it? It's so easy to nod off and little by little compromise our worship of Jesus. It's so easy to doze off and to simply become no different to the rest of the world. And many have walked away from the Lord Jesus so that they are no longer clothed in his righteousness. But what God says to us here in this passage is to stay awake. Uh, keep trusting in Jesus, as we've already heard in the kids' talk. Keep responding to him with faith and a genuine repentance that turns away from our sinful ways and turns to him in trust so that we might continue to be clothed with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, ready for that day of judgment, which can come at any moment like a thief in the night. For in the book of Revelation, friends, this is how you and I win in life, isn't it? We do not win by having the most toys. We do not win by having the most accomplishments in this life. We do not win by ticking off the most things on our bucket lists. For the judgment of God is coming. And those who will win will be the ones who have stayed awake and trusted in God, trusted in the Lord Jesus, and are now ready for the end because they are clothed with the white robes of righteousness of Christ himself, which is the clothing of victory. Are you staying awake? Are you keeping your clothes on, ready for the end? Well, finally, uh, friends, we come to the seventh plague. And uh, with this plague, what we are seeing is the final judgment uh, at the end of human history. Uh, you can see this in verse 17, because uh, after the seventh angel pours out his bowl, God says, it is done. Notice that the seventh angel pours out his bowl into the air as God destroys not only human beings who are opposed to him, who dwell on the earth, but the spiritual world who are opposed to him. But it's not simply God showing his wrath in frustrated anger, as we might uh, sometimes show our anger. For in verse 18, we see lightning and thunder and a great earthquake. Now, whenever you see these sort of things in the book of Revelation, it's symbolic of God's holiness. And so God is pouring out his anger out of his holy and pure character that cannot look upon evil in this world. Now, uh, we're going to see up close and personal uh, what this final judgment of God will entail uh, in following weeks. But notice quickly that in verse 19, that the godless city of Babylon is split in three. And in verse 21, great hailstones, about 45 kilograms in weight, crush the unrepentant beneath them, and yet still they curse God rather than acknowledge him. 
Uh, C.S. Lewis once famously wrote that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Uh, I think there's a measure of truth in this. For not only is hell a punishment from God, but those who are punished are the ones who continue to reject God and curse God and rebel against him because they do not want him. The gates of hell are locked from the inside as well as the outside. It's it's an awful image of final judgment here, isn't it? And yet the good news is that there is one other place in the Bible where God says, it is done. Do you know where it is? Uh, You can look this up later, but it's in John chapter 19, verse 30, as Jesus dies on the cross, and as Jesus drinks from the cup of God's wrath down to its very dregs. In other words, friends, uh, you and I can have our sin and rebellion and false worship of God judged on the last day of human history, when God will say to us, it is done, as he brings calamity and destruction and utter ruin to life. Or you can have your sin judged at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, where he dies in your place and in my place, taking the penalty of judgment that we deserved upon himself so that we might be forgiven and granted eternal life, so that there is no wrath left for us at the end. And so, what will it be for you and for me? Will we go to to the final day of judgment, which can come at any hour without Christ, and face the awful judgment of God? Or will we turn to Jesus and have our sin judged at the cross so that there is no more wrath left for us. Uh, I know that many of us here have turned to Christ and are continuing to put our trust in him, repenting of our ways. But uh, friends, uh, if you haven't yet made that decision, uh, can I plead with you today uh, to think very carefully about what God says in his word and to turn to him in repentance and faith. To repent doesn't simply mean we feel sorry for the things we've done. It means, rather, a genuine turning away from our sinful attitude and behaviour against God and to turn to Jesus as the King who rules your life. To put your faith in Jesus means to trust in his death and resurrection for you and to receive his gift of forgiveness and eternal life. If you haven't done this, then do it today, because that is the only way that you will be ready for the day of God's judgment that is sure to come. Let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we are conscious that we live in a world of injustice, that has set itself against you and your ways. And often our hearts cry out for justice in this world. And we thank you for the reminder today that you are a holy God and that you will bring justice and judgment to this world 
and set it to rights. Uh, but Father, we know that we ourselves are sinful and deserving of your judgment. And so we thank you that you are also a God of mercy and that through the death of your Son, our sins have been judged at the cross. We thank you that he drank the bitter cup of your judgment for us so that we might not face that judgment on the last day. And so, Father, please help us to keep on trusting uh, in the Lord Jesus in our lives. Uh, we pray that you would help us to persevere, especially during difficult periods in our, our Christian lives, so that we might stay fully awake and clothed with the righteousness of Jesus himself. And we pray for our world, that even though many continue to curse you and resist you, even in the face of judgment, uh, we ask that in your great mercy you would continue to save some. Uh, we know that you are a God who does not delight in judgment, but who delights in showing mercy and grace. And so we ask that you would please show mercy to many through the good news of Jesus before the end. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.